0: you have to make mistakes, because that's the sort of edge of your seat drama that being in a band should be. But I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems, because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be. I had my battles with record companies back in the 80s and and won the, the right to make the records I
1: wanted. I spent 10 years of my life with no money trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want.
0: Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to. Altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it, and turning it into a kind of higher art form. I mean, we're all expected to be videographers and influencers and all of this at the same time, and I'm not any of those. I'm a songwriter for every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere, you know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because your career looked to be pretty much finished. I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of
1: getting on top of the box,
0: but also in terms of getting my vision
1: to come true. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing.
0: Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians, and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Ben Folds, welcome to The Art of Longevity. Good to be here, finally. Yeah, it's taken a while. You have to
1: have longevity first, I'm assuming.
0: It is a qualification for being on this show, and sometimes it does take a a while to organize, but welcome. So, Ben, tell me, how are you, and whereabouts in the world are you?
1: Yeah, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm in the garage above, or I'm in the the studio above my garage, made this um, a year ago, and still breaking it in.
0: And you're just back in Nashville, aren't you? You've been on the road, you're still working probably far too hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the frequency of stuff. Traveling sucks, you know, but I'm doing a lot of that. Yeah. Well, welcome. Let's start with what matters
0: most, which I think as we speak, it's probably going to be released roughly the same time we get this episode of the show out. And it's been quite a while but you've been around the block a few times with releasing new albums. So how do you feel on the eve of this particular release? Just tell me how you feel as, as we run up to
1: it. You know, this one is, it's not really meeting resistance, you know, like that would, maybe a funny way to describe it, but a lot of times, you, you, you know, if you put out albums regularly, you're going to put them out in the storm sometimes, and sometimes you're going to put them out and then the, you've got the wind to your back. And this one feels like more wind to the back moment really that's what it feels like i could be wrong but the expectations are far lower because my career is not defined by the success of this album which should change the way that i make the album and the the way that i promote it i think
0: yeah it's interesting when you read the pr around releases i always kind of gravitate towards what the artists themselves have said and you said on this one you've taken some influence from your orchestral work to make this album more of of an event And I love the idea of that, but just tell me more about what you mean by an event.
1: Well, the orchestration and and the capturing an event may be sort of different issues, but I think an event can be, it can just be simply, this record was made by a 55-year-old musician during the end of the pandemic. That would be the event. I know we're making movies in a way when we make records, but I also want a record that you could date on all counts. Date the artist, date the record. I think that there's something neat about that. When I listen to, like I used to like to collect, I still do some, but I just don't have the apparatus to play it back on, old 78s. I didn't know who these people were. I didn't have the context that I was would have had in the era, but I put on the record and I can almost hear. I hear the event. But I almost hear the time before the music started and the time after the record ends. They got kicked out of the studio. How many takes did you get in 1942? Not, Not many. So I'm hearing people that I didn't know. I'm learning the person at that moment. I'm hearing their thoughts, their feelings at the moment. In real time, it's an event. Move on. I was fascinated with that. And I never knew that these people were, you know. Blind Benny Folds in 1943, who is this guy? That is an event. Orchestration, where that plays into it, you know, during that time too, arrangement or orchestration is as we had learned. Imagine if you you're were, you were even a jazz player or a blues player in that era. Most of history before you, in terms of an ensemble, was actually orchestrated. And it was orchestrated so that when the event happened, it would be smooth We're prepared all those kind of things you know come to my mind but i think the event is is powerful because you you're either expressing an ideal a design or you're expressing an event you know like really those two things are the things that you could could possibly express and all of them are done i mean david bowie let's take a, an era of someone like david bowie well we don't believe that he went to mars we're not concerned uh, in many ways uh, uh, about the autobiographical stuff, or or the event, but then Bruce Springsteen, the same year, is strumming about going across Badlands or something like that. Well, we're very interested in that. We're very interested in the moment that he stepped in the studio. So you have an event and a creative ideal, you know. So I, I these are the things I think about that 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 could be challenged, or probably I probably would would argue against them tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like
0: music to be evocative of time and place as we listen to it. It always brings to mind what your life was in that particular moment. But I guess what was interesting to me about this is it it was also in the context of the way music comes to us at the moment, which is a kind of relentless tide of releases. And it's great because it's the gift that keeps on giving. But as the musician, I sometimes think, well, how do you make this release, which is a piece of work that you've put your life and soul into a a long period of time into how do you make that count when you get it out there and you've talked about you're from the vinyl era i'm interested to talk to you about that because it feels to me like the vinyl resurgence has made the event album it's come back again and that we can put it on as a ritual
1: you're spot on my thinking and my sense of all this timing yeah
0: did you kind of visualize the vinyl concept the scheduling. Tell me about how you thought about this as a as a record in the physical form.
1: Well, I mean, I've I've always thought about my releases as side A, side B. I've never made a record that wasn't vinyl. And sometimes I had to pay for that myself out of the the way the record deal was um structured. Or I would have to go back to the label and say, I, I know you're not going to make record. Can you just I charge my account for it? I'll make the record. It's fine. Once I had to fly to Abbey Road to have it mastered because they, uh, they had a mastering lathe there that was the kind of mastering lathe that I wanted to use, and then sent that to Germany to be pressed. It, we were so impoverished in the United States at that moment for um, making vinyl. Now it's like, obviously it's come back, you know? But it was exciting, because I knew when, I knew when I finished the record I'd have to wait for a year to get the vinyl manufactured. Not quite a year, but like a lot, like a long time, so... I really was able to easily imagine this, again, as as vinyl and the side split. I've always been real conscious of things like, okay, we're going to split side A and side B. The timings, you know, you get up around 20 minutes and your last track starts to get squished down and stuff. I don't know if many artists these days know about those things, but it certainly was a consideration if you were making a record in the 70s you know you go well let's not put the loudest thing on side 2 and have it be a 22 minute side or you cram in the grooves the and shit like that you know but it really it does it does all serve a more hands-on visceral way of living with music which i i won't say is better it's just more comfortable for me you know
0: well as a fan i think it's better you know because i find that you have to self impose the scarcity to really appreciate the record. Because otherwise it just stuff comes at you. And you know it's really good music. But it just kind of flows. It filters through you. I bought the latest My Morning Jacket record. It came out a year ago. But I bought it on vinyl. Because I knew that I'd kind of missed it. In just the flow of stuff. And I didn't want to miss it. You know when you get a preview of these records. When you talk to artists like What Matters Most. I Okay I listened to it a couple of times on SoundCloud. But I want to stop right there. Because I'd rather have it arrive in the post and drop the needle. Record.
1: I just want to say it's one of the best pressings I've ever heard, you know, between the recording of it, everything and the mix plus the mastering engineer who mastered it for vinyl. The whole thing just, just, it, it just enjoyed a perfect storm. I, I was blown away hearing the test pressings of it. I was like, thank you. Finally made a record that sounds good. This is great. I've never made a record that wasn't on vinyl yeah, that was me. And my house has always been a life support system for about ten of those. So <laughs> every room's always got a different era of turntable, and I, I tend to them the way, you know, some middle-aged dude does to his '70s Corvette. Like I just you know, them with uh, there. It means a lot to me. I've never had a house that didn't have or an apartment or anything that wasn't full of records and full of of vinyl. I just love it. So anyway,
0: yeah, it, I think it gives a dignity to music but I, I love the fact that it's coming back around and that you're great yeah bands are back into bile the art of longevity is presented with bowers and wilkins the revered british premium audio brand bowers and wilkins make some of the world's finest audio products from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers trusted by abbey road studios for over 40 years to the flagship px8 wireless headphones this is music as the artist intended you to hear it on the eve of the release, do you have a view as to where what matters most fits into the oeuvre of Ben so to speak? Or you do you wait for a response to that to see how the, the record goes down?
1: You don't know for years, but there are some things that I think you do feel. There's a feeling when you make something that is, I think what I was saying was sort of the, the wind at your back sort of record. And this one has that. Like, I don't have... I don't have reservations about almost any of it. I mean, I guess I, I might be concerned about some misinterpretation of a couple things. And I always take 50% of the blame for anything that I say to someone and they misunderstand it. Like either I didn't put down what they needed to pick up or they didn't pick up what I put down. It's both of our faults. So I, so when I worry about those things, I always blame myself, you know. So I go, ah, I could have done that, could have said that, I could have done that differently, you know. But I don't have a lot of that on this record. Mostly I just feel like I have carried a tradition of craft, which is not easily come by from an era where it was already going away into now. And I always have admired old craftsmen. I've always admired that, whether it was like someone like Ansel Adams that goes through generations. And and to the point where Ansel had um, had printers that were helping him print at the end of his career because he was kind of too feeble to do it. He had two or three printers. And he asked of them that if someone knocked on their door physically and said, will you teach me how to print Ansel's negatives, that they would be obligated to do that. And they told him before they he died that they would do that. And I don't know if these people are still alive, but I always wanted to go knock on their door and say, can, can we print moon over? Can I do it? I want to learn. And I kind of want to be that person for the craft of writing and making records, whether or not I'm making the best records ever. I, it's really important for me to put out a record in this era that kind of says, kids, I'm going to give you a well-crafted album. You don't have to love me. You don't have to love what I'm singing about, any of that. But it sounds good and it flows and it wasn't easily come by it actually requires crap. so you can read out of your diary over over a loop if you want and i i don't have a problem with that because cuz kids express stuff that is unparalleled in its burst of youthful expression that i can't do but boy they might want to learn something too and i kind of feel like that's part of why i made the record i've been like batting for music education music education funding orchestras working being humbled by working with orchestrators and composers and and learning orchestration every day for the last 15 years going through Ravel scores and listening to these things i'm humble about it i'm benjamin tinyman i i feel like holy shit but at the same time i'm like okay well i can step up and go kids this is a well-crafted record you can go online and say it sucks if you want to. I'm not really listening, you know. Like I, that's then tiny you, you know. But I, I do feel like you know that's that's where I wanted to be generous. I wanted to go, you know, like listen carefully. The second verse is not different in the way that you think it is. The person in the third chorus is not different the way that you think it is. The wording is not as you think it should be. It's stuff that I learn from listening to so many records that the the grooves on them turned white when I was a kid, from having so many failures, from working with so many different kinds of musicians, failing so many times myself. And I just, over the pandemic, I was teaching songwriting lessons. This is the best way to really follow through with that, I think, is to do that. And and it might sound kind of cocky to say that this is a lesson in songwriting, but I don't know.
0: It is. I think it's a really interesting time for music, though, because both forms are super relevant. So getting music out quickly and all the time, like from the writing to just getting it down and getting it out, that's relevant. Uh, and it's it's very today. Uh, everybody wants the craft. I mean, you know, from the students you were teaching, they all want to learn the craft. And it, it interests me how they can learn it in this day and age when everything moves so fast and is so ephemeral.
1: Well, I think one way to to learn it is is obviously to take note of when the, the craft is there and what you can learn from it and how to, by listening to it, right? Even by listening to something that might be a little empty in terms of content, but the craft is good. That would be, back to Ansel Adams, that would be the worst kind of song, a sharp photograph of a fuzzy subject, you know? But you can still learn something from it, you know? Like, I think when when kids are expressing something that they know is going to be heard tomorrow that they're making and is speaking about them. There's something really hugely powerful about that. You know, would it be more powerful if they were able to employ more craft? Yeah, it would be more powerful. I know that it would be. And that's not new. Like that's that's centuries old. But every generation we 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 want to reject the elders, you know, which we should. You know? But it's that it's that fine line where you, you do want to learn how it was done and then create. I mean, look at someone like I think of the last 10 years, maybe a little more. A great example would be Kendrick Lamar. That is on the shoulders of everything. There's great jazz in it. There's great composition in it. There's uh, artful poetry. There's an amazing skill of, it's great. There's nothing not great about that stuff. I mean, personally, you can edit this out between me and you. I've never done anything that great, and I never will. But, you know, it still could be better. Like, you know, you can still make it better. <laughs> well, Kendrick
0: probably feels that way. And I think the thing that gives me great optimism is that that is why he has so many fans. Because they know that they're experiencing something that is deep, and it's different. And it it's longevous in that it goes way, way back. Um, you know there's something in that
1: yeah it's easily on the shoulders that's what's so great about it is the ease of saying i'm going to use you know i talked to john Batista about this at length you know john is he's a jazz pianist he was he's a fantastic musician and he's really articulate about more so than i about the making music and he said he has embraced the mundane he's like all those things that you think you want to be discovering someone else discovered those use them Build the pir- pyramid up, and then set yourself on the shoulders of that, and then express yourself. Use all that stuff, so that this is available. You know, the the kids can learn. You can sit with uh, Bartok children's songs next week, then make an album.
0: Well, you mentioned earlier that as you dived into classical, you become tiny, <laughs> and I, I kind of get that. But let's focus on a couple of tracks from from the new record. So the thing that leapt out at me was interesting from the 7th grade because your classical influences are just right on the surface you know to waltz but the theme is you know the kind of conflicted role of social media tell me about how your diving into classical has it influenced how you make music because as you say it's an ocean that is limitless so how do you tame it and how do you start to be influenced by it
1: well, it's a mess, you know. Like when you use something specifically, that song, you know. I've got some growing orchestration chops. There's a waltz on our first record, the ben Folds Five Records, at the end of the record called "Boxing's Been Good to Me," and it's actually pretty well. It's definitely well arranged in the piano. It's like it's pretty eloquent voice leading. If I was just going to be a heartless music teacher about it, then yeah, the the, the voice leading is very good. It's sparse. It's proper. I orchestrated a a really quick, small hack string section for it, and it's pretty good. I've learned so much since then. And so Christine from seventh grade is like, okay, now I can actually write kind of a ravel light orchestration for it. Mind you, Ravel wrote his string quartet in F major when he was 20 years old. But I wanted a little bit of that in it, you know? And so, you know, in the middle of the sessions when I could have been doing other stuff, all my time was spent orchestrating the string quartet to be sit in the way that, I, but you know, I, I was humbled immediately because string players who were very good showed up and I just hadn't written it right. You know, my idea was right, but I didn't have the working class experience still of just shaking it out of your sleeve every day and fucking up and fucking up and fucking up. I came in a little bit as a student And it gave what I think was probably an A-minus effort of orchestration. That orchestration is very good. It was a fucking disaster. The string players don't necessarily all play together all the time. I didn't really express clearly enough where they cut off together. I didn't really uh, give them the proper Italian so that they would know how to articulate. Did they have mutes? Did they not have mutes? The voicings were just a little bit wide between some of the instruments, which made some of the voice leading kind of awkward, and I found myself frantically trying to put out a dumpster fire of a session in the three hours that I had them, and they were helpful. They were like, we can do this, we can't do that. At the end of the day, we didn't know if we could use it or not. Through the amazing art of editing, I was able to get it back together into more of what I intended. And it's very good. I mean, I think the orchestration, the string quartet is awesome. It's got just a little bit of like, sort of a little more of a pit band charm to it. You know, like a, as if it's a Bauhaus piece, like done for a, a cheap theater in, in time, but I, that wasn't intended. That was me trying to, which by the way, probably there were Kurt Vile pieces that were done in real time. You know, for plays and stuff that were probably that sloppy. And in fact, you know, his his orchestral work is sometimes awesomely sloppy because he's a working class musician trying to do this thing. So I'm okay with it, but it wasn't really what I intended. And I love that. I could go on about it, but it it was to me, it was high drama because I thought, fucking shit. I've worked a whole week on this. I'm trying to make something really eloquently done perfectly and it's never going to be what I intended and now I love it so
0: well it's back to what we were talking about with the event right it comes out as it's one version of many many hundred versions you could have made it but the fact that it comes out the way it does it comes across very well it is part of that whole event piece I think the other one I want to talk about is back to anonymous because um, of the theme so obviously since I've been doing this podcast the art of longevity is a reflection on careers it's the ups and the downs And I think probably since you wrote your book, you've been reflecting on your career. So I want to read back something in Back to Anonymous, which is about your time at the height of fame. You say, back when they'd say, savor this moment, it's your time, seize the day, but I couldn't stay awake and I didn't feel a thing. And that was very poignant to me because in the conversations I've had on this on the show, that's what happens to a lot of artists in the height of their fame is they're just so fucking tired or pushed from pillar to post that they do not enjoy it.
1: I know. And that's your life, you know, and I was trying to relate this song as well to the feeling of everyone wearing masks during the pandemic. That's actually where it came from to begin with. And of course the way to make it real for me is to just really root it in my experience of walking in anywhere that I I, I went in. I knew that I would be approached or recognized and, might not seem to your average punter that that would have been the case for me but i've definitely had eras of of the kind of fame where you don't go anywhere without being recognized you know and because everyone wants that everyone wants acceptance everyone wants to be recognized what one imagines is that that is the height of being that's the thing that everyone would want wouldn't i want to walk in and have people on my side and Interested in me and all these things. And it should be that way. Unfortunately, there's no way to really express it. It's like I remember seeing the Amy Winehouse. I almost couldn't sit through it, The the movie. I almost can't remember having seen it without tearing up. I, I just couldn't get through it. And I know that your average person, it's sad to them too, but it always, from someone who hasn't experienced that at all on any level, it also has a romantic tinge because they're like, oh, the fame. I have it all and yet I'm not happy. It it's, not like, it's not what it is. You're so fucking tired. You can't see straight. You can't make decisions. You make mountains out of molehills. You get self conscious. You worry that you walk into a cafe. It's not that you're going to be recognized, it's that you you have BO. You forgot to sh- shave. Someone's going to want to take their picture with you and you feel small. You you walk into a cafe and you think everyone recognizes you, but then someone points out no one one no one does, and so you walked in with that mindfuck. And I think every day of that is disorienting in a way that it does what you just said really really well, which is it takes that part of your life away. You wanted to live that life, you know, like maybe you lived through a tough part of your life where you were actually present. Well, that's actually better because. You've gone through a tough part of your life, but you can clock it. You can remember it. You felt something, and you can say what you feel. When you get shoved in that astronaut suit, and everything that you see is through the helmet, and everything is fisheye lens, and and someone pokes you with a pen, and you're like, "I didn't feel that." What was that? Oh, I poked you with a pen. Well, I sorry, I didn't feel that. That's truly, I think that is a loss of something. It's kind of sad. But I don't think that you can really express that without sounding like a fucking whiner to anybody, you know, because I'm so thankful for the times that I've been successful and for my long career and for the love that's come my way and all that stuff. I don't want to be a whiner, but I'm really glad when I'm not recognized. I'm really glad when we had our face masks on and then I could really go anywhere, walk into the department store with a face mask and buy something or talk someone they don't even know that was the joy of that. And to sit on a bus one time and watch people and think, what a fucking hero that person helped that person get their bike on the front of the bus. That's cool. Like no one applauded that. Did I expect applause every day? Cause this person's doing something great and they weren't applauded. And I just wanted all that in the song. There's a
0: line in there, which kind of hints you might want to get that fame back. We're at a time in the music business where that level of fame is just harder and harder to achieve anyway, but it still happens, you know, the burnout and the mangle is still there. It's going to mess you up. But the alternative is a lot of, I speaking to you from the great escape in Brighton, where there are rising artists trying to impress on every venue and every street corner here. And it's really hard to understand what it is they're striving for.
1: And I have these conversations with them like, what do you want? Like, you want to be recognized What do you find? Like, what do you draw conclusions? I've never really talked to people about that.
0: There's certainly a realization that what they want is a career. They want to make a living from music. And before you can get to that point, you have to get to some height somewhere. You have to be recognized by, you know, it's some level of industry attachment, whatever it is the charts, streaming, live audiences. You have to achieve some claim to fame before you can kind of settle into a, a loyal audience where you can make a living i think that's the struggle
1: mm-hmm. it is i think that, that that's that rings true for me i do like to think the even though you know fame and, and and acceptance and stuff may well be a part of it and part of sets off a dopamine thing for people or serotonin rush or whatever it is that, that is set off by that and probably an ad- addiction to that does ensue but at the heart of it i'm with you i think that most of them I mean, look, we might be loading carpet, you know, like I might have to get my shoulder back in shape and load carpet or go mow lawns or something, who knows, you know, or for me, maybe teaching music, which when during the pandemic, I was kind of back to, right? I was teaching music online, you know, some of it wasn't really because I wanted to make a living as much as I wanted to be useful, but I was kind of humbled by it. So yeah, these kids are wanting to they don't want to have to wait tables or bus tables or load carpet or sell cars or make cars. You know, that's a huge thing. But they're also chasing a little bit of a dream that, that we abandon when we're 15 years old. You start working towards it when you're 15. And then one day someone at some unlikely time impresses upon you that you did it. I don't know when that will be for different people. It could be late for some people, but you go, shit. I did do that. Why did I do that? And you have to go back to 15 years old for the answer. I made a song on one of my albums that was called uh, Draw a Crowd, and the point of the song kind of was rooted in in the idea or or in an image of ordering, drunk ordering something on Amazon that arrives next week and you don't remember ordering it. So you walk out to your porch and you're like, did I order this? I feel like that's what my career was for so much of it. I was like, I really wanted that when I was young. And then when it arrived on my front step, I was like, that was drunk me from a long time ago. (laughs) Did I really want that? Now I'm totally happy with my package, you know, but it took 25 years of settling into it and I'm pretty happy with what it is right now. I, I think it's cool.
0: Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. I thought about that when I read your book, because there are whole passages in the book where you talk about the industry, and you seem pretty cognizant of the music industry and its machinations but maybe that's in hindsight i'm thinking like one of the chapters when ben falls five first began to break there's a bit in there where you say you know the gatekeepers of the industry allowed us passage and to the next round and we would proceed until apprehended did you feel like that at the time like did you realize that was your time was ticking from the start or is that something in hindsight you reflected on
1: I think every musician has that feeling. If you go back and look at interviews with the Beatles after they did their first U or while they're doing their first US tour, Ringo wanted to hurry up and take his investment, little money he'd made there, and go start a barber shop. You know, like you really do feel like, okay, they let us in. This is it. You have to kill it now. Like because you don't get this opportunity often. I'm thinking maybe different sometimes if someone is a Maybe a YouTuber or something. They might might not have that. I don't know. I don't actually speak from experience. They they may feel the same way as I did. Sometimes they get the impression that they might not know what it's like to have to play in Hamburg in anonymity for five years for a bunch of drunks playing covers. And then everyone thinks you made it on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, because it takes so long, you know. But, yeah, we were aware of that. We were aware of they've led us through. We're going we're gonna to be toast in five seconds. We have to kill this now. And it's a fun pressure. I, I dug the pressure. My bandmates didn't like it as much. But I sort of thrived on it. No sleep. Looked at the calendar. I didn't want a white spot on the calendar. I wanted a black calendar.
0: Do you think going back to that time, one of the things that was important in your career is that somehow after the years of struggle and you got signed, I think you got signed to a Sony imprint, they gave you total creative control. How important was that to you at the time? Was that significant in looking back on your career longevity?
1: That's one of those, be careful what you ask for moments, because traditionally a label and a system and sort of the right producer should be like, kids, we're making a record now. This ain't your living room. It's not the small club. There's a way to do it. You need to listen, but I wasn't willing because we had already made a failed album. I'd already had almost a decade of what I felt like was failed ass kissing, where I felt like I was making demos for other people. I was too success oriented. I wanted to make something that said something of myself when really what I should have been doing is just making a good record and taking myself out of the equation a little bit, just things, you know? And so when they gave us complete control we hung ourselves to a degree, you know, like we decided we were going to make that in a, you know, 500 square foot house. Well, that didn't sound very good. We used a producer that had never produced records before. Maybe we should have thought twice about that. All all in all, I'm really happy with it. it. It documented the event, the event won, but at the expense of a lot of craft and a lot of times where we could have, I was I was just telling my wife a couple of days ago, I was like, you know, my song, Brick, or our song, Brick, was neck and neck with Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve on all the same channels. And we remained so. Like we were aware of this other song because all of those formats had nothing but grunge. And was not grunge. And it was craftful, and ours was too. And, you know, at the end of the day, they did theirs in a good studio. They had some awesome craft with it. They knew how to work that that loop over it. It was well done. The craftsmanship of what they did was a 10, and ours was a 6. As soon as they hit that point where a great audience could now listen and decide, theirs took the fuck off and ours died. <laughs> and it should have been that way. I've always wanted to meet those guys and kiss, their, kiss the floor next to them or something because I learned something by that.
0: But at the same time, you know, the Verve couldn't, they couldn't do that again.
1: Well, they hated each other, probably. I don't know what their story was, but I know that that was a last cast for them. But fuck, it's good. It's really good. Every time I hear that thing come out of a speaker again, I'm just like, shit. Because the perspective for a while is that your single's climbing, it's climbing. You're competing with another thing. What's it called? Us. Uh, Remember that band, The Verve? They've made another record. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, talk about time and place. You know, That was a pretty special moment in in music, I think, because Ben Falls Five and The Verve were bringing in something completely different. And yeah, there was a, a kind of a resurgence of the craft at that point, which was an exciting wave to ride, I guess.
1: I think so, and I would also kind of... I think the the point originally, the reason I brought them up is it comes from total creative control. Most bands, to some degree, allowed themselves to be under the wing of a great producer. You know, it might have been Nigel or Rick Rubin, or it might have been Andy Wallace or uh, Brendan O'Brien, a, a heap of different people that we could have had at our disposal to learn from and to make. So we could have made the same songs, and they could have had. Da, 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 over it, instead of like me in my bedroom on an out of tune piano going data, dang, dang. You know, like I'm not saying that to be overly self deprecating. I actually believe that we we lost an opportunity by being so cocky as to tell a record label, you stay out of our business right up to the mastering. I don't want to hear a comment about the studio. I don't want to hear any of it. That's the only way I'm going to sign this yeah, that sounds good, and I don't really agree with it now, you know? And I also wouldn't take that record back. Like, I'm happy with the record, it's an event, it made its own sauce, but it's worth thinking about for new artists. To hear someone who's 55, who made a rawer record than they will ever make, probably, say that. Uh, I have pangs of of regret about how we did it, you know?
0: Well, you know, again, thinking about having seen lots of the performances here, you did something else as well post-Band Falls Five when you went out and toured with just you and a piano, which these days has actually become essential. So if you've got a full band, you're making a record, that's one thing. If you're thinking about taking it on the road, forget it. You have to make that record work somehow, either yourself or in a stripped-down version of the band. But it's really, really hard to do that. But you really took to that. That sort of performance brought something else out of you and it was you know partly the improv and the banter and everything else but that would be nerve-wracking to so many artists now who can't figure out how to take their music on the road i mean talk to me about how that whole experience benefited your career
1: well it was scary you know it's scary for me and i'm i'm a pretty good piano player to go suddenly that naked with stuff when i kind of thought the point was the rock here or the drums here, or the excitement, and I suddenly didn't have that anymore. I can't say that I was I was shaking into my boots when I went out to do the first tour like that. I think it really was scary. It was I felt the need to do it financially, as you pointed out, it's logistics, but also I think I also really embraced stepping into that into that place. You know, it's scary, like face face your fear stuff. It it made me do it. I listened to a lot of um, James Booker, the jazz pianist from New Orleans, more so than uh, Professor Longhair, because there's something about his abandon on the piano and vocally too that keeps your attention just by himself for as long as he wanted to. And this is a guy I understand spent a lot of his life in jail, you know, in, in the street. He wasn't a happy or well person. And something about who he was allowed him to just completely break the law on that instrument. You know, you could listen to Solo, Neil Sedaka, Elton John, Billy Joel, Carly Simon, Randy Newman, Joni Mitchell, I could go on. You could listen to all that and learn something. But one thing I don't think that any of them pulled off was all night in a serious rock venue. Like, these people expect a rock show. No, those people, they went to their shows expecting an evening with. But I was going out playing standing kind of places, rock venues. Sometimes I would play like Coachella or something where everything else was loud and suddenly I come up with a piano. So the way that I learned was listening to James Booker and how his not give a fuckness, could I find that in myself? And um, yeah, I mean, I could sort of specifically show someone where i'm widening in fact i would show you now is that instead of going (laughs) the noise around the noise around that g octave for instance creates an excitement and distortion this guy spent his time in jail and stuff he'd come out and play at an oyster bar and they bring a recorder out because they're like shit bookers out he's gonna make so that's how he made his records He's not accurate. And the accuracy is also kind of this. There is something about that. So I started playing like that just because fucking someone like him did. <laughs> and and I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot from him.
0: Okay. So that's interesting to me, because that cause you introduced me to the Elton album 1711. Yeah, 17, eleven seventeen seventy. Uh which I hadn't heard that recording before. But I thought that was the root of the influence on of your live shows and i guess to some extent it was but that was quite actually quite polished that's the three-piece state of the art unbelievable i mean the recording of, of that show but the performance is literally incredible
1: yeah and elton thinks so himself i mean i when i put the record out i wanted to i wanted to you know mention to him that we're not like best friends but we've kept up over the years and i just wanted to let him know you know i was really digging into that album a lot i want to make sure you're cool with this and he's like I couldn't repeat that. He's like, that's just, he knows it's good. It's the state of the art of that. And I, I don't really know why. It's like, he thought it was a placeholder. He couldn't afford another guitar player. He couldn't afford anything. He was going to the United States and touring. They only toured this way for like a year.
0: Did you hear the um, Billy Joel live at the American Music Hall, which was released, I think, a year ago for Record Store Day?
1: I didn't, know.
0: Which was 1974 or 5, I think. It's a similar thing. But what I hear in that is, apart from the performance, which is raw, but it's also definitely in the zone, is I hear that kind of element of audience banter, spontaneity. I feel like that part of performance is dying out somewhat, which concerns me. Do you have the same feeling? You know, you were a big part of performing in that way, and that's part of your career.
1: I don't really know, because I have to be honest, I don't. I just, you know... I don't seek anything from going to bad rock performances because you have to go to so many of them. You know, back if you're, you know, like I say in my book, the, you know, music for the mating age, it used to be, you go out to a rock club. Part of it was, it was hanging with your friends and maybe find a girlfriend and stuff like that. And I work all the time. I couldn't tell you, man, there could be Amazing stuff going on like that. I mean, I hear stuff like Dodie is on my record, and I one of the things I really love about her her version of that is like she might just one day pick her phone up and sing three of her songs five times as fast as she wrote them. Even though it's over the internet, there's a sense that you have removed the veil and the glass and the stuff. And it is, even though it's coming through a phone. So Maybe the language is a little different now, but I got that off of her and I was always so impressed with the way she manages to cut the filters out of the way at certain times. Sometimes not, you know, sometimes she might just put some posing bullshit on or something that I'm not particularly interested in, but but she manages that and that's a, I think that's that's very special. Makes her a really special artist and maybe kids are doing it that way. I don't know, but I ain't going out to the clubs to listen to 60 shitty bands so I can hear one good one.
0: It seems to be something that's dying off is the
1: conversation
0: with the crowd, with the audience.
1: Do you mean like actual blah, 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 talking banjo? Yeah, yeah. a yeah, conversation, yeah, yeah, telling
0: stories, just dealing with hecklers, taking inspiration from that into the next soul. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to happen these days.
1: I know, like, like Frank Sinatra live at the Sands. He's there. I mean, it's like there are people there. They're clinking drinks. There's hecklers. He's telling stories. It's so raw. It's, it, well, Billy Joel's era didn't do it as well as he did. And then my era didn't do it as well as Billy Joel. And you're right, it's probably gone. I, you know.
0: The Art of Longevity is recorded at Cube West Studios in Acton and sometimes at the Cube East Studios in London's Canary Wharf. Cube is the world's first members' studio for musicians, podcasters, and content creators, and it's a real sanctuary for London's independent, inspired creators. It's a real pleasure to record the show here. Okay, I, I know we don't have too long left. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm counting the time here. So I've got a couple of things I wanted to ask you. i just going to be selfish and ask you about Reinhold Messner, the unauthorized biography, of, because that's probably in my top 20 albums of all time i think that album is a masterpiece i didn't realize at the time that it was kind of the destruction of of ben falls five and it was a torrid time making it but i would like to just get your reflection on the record now in hindsight how do you feel about that album because to me it's a classic didn't really kind of happen commercially do you have a view would you kind of be interested in any time of bringing it back to life in any way shape or form
1: we did play the record front to back on a show called front to back in 2008 nearly 10 years after the record was made I think it was a really good performance I would love to see that as an album one day you know maybe we should talk to someone about that I thought it was really good we had a different perspective on it by then and, and we were working together differently Yeah, man. I mean, that record, um, it was super scary to make. It was, at any moment, it wasn't going to happen. It didn't sound very good until the very end. There were songs cut up into different songs and verses that were turned into bridges and medleys almost that were turned into parts. There was tape on the floor. I would come back to the studio and our producer, who had done the other ones, he was learning how to produce, essentially. We'd be standing in three feet of two-inch tape that he had edited, ruining our work from the day before, but then making it into something. It was crazy, man. And and no one in the band, like the like Robert and Darren didn't know what the titles of the songs were. I just said, let's do that thing in G again. And they'd be like, dude, you have to at least give it a name. Like, what have you been doing all day? And it's like, I don't have a song. I, I don't have a song. And they're like, you don't have anything? And we're spending all this time in studio? We have a release date. And then Darren came in, like, here, here's a song I just wrote so you'll fucking finish something. It's called Magic. Let's just play it so we have something to play. I was like, God, that's better than everything else I'm doing on the record. I mean, for me, I can still smell the days of that record, where we were living, the takeout food, Sound City, where we made the record, the rental car, everything. Like, it's just so, it's so, no other record I've made has that solid of a visceral memory of the record and now when i listen to it i'm sorry but i have too many regrets of that one like i i think i just know all the seams of it and i know i don't have i hear things i go jesus fucking christ you left that oh my god that's, that's
0: terrible but i think it's a masterpiece so
1: <laughs> i know i know and i and and thank you i'm not going to try to poke a hole in that thank you
0: All right. So you're coming over to, I I think you're touring the US, I think an extensive tour, then you're coming over to Europe. In fact, I think you're doing the Brighton Dome, which I just came from literally before we had this conversation. What are you looking forward to most about taking what matters most on the road?
1: In the UK, I'm actually really kind of uh, excited to have a bassist from Glasgow who I found on Instagram. Her name is Mandy Clark. And I was just like, watching her play and just like kind of living room stuff going because i'm a bass player how did you persuade her to come on tour oh you know i just i sent her a note over instagram i was like can we talk about about possible touring and then i said we're really gonna have to vet you because she could be crazy (laughs) okay (laughs) Or maybe not professional. Maybe she's never played again. I didn't know anything, so we did. And 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 she said, "Look, I played for Katie Tungstall for a little while, and I've done some other things." So I was like, "Okay." She had worked with some people I knew, and so you know, it ended up being cool. But um, I was exciting because that's a new way of doing it. I could have auditioned people in five cities to do it. That's another way of doing it. But this was, this was, and so I'm really excited to hear because she's a little more of a showman than the bass playing that I actually need. But I'm actually kind of interested in that. I think it was going to be really cool, and she's excited to do it. The other thing is, I feel proud of the record, and I'm kind of happy to present the record as much as it is as I can. I'm happy to go through the motions of performing it. So sometimes I'm not. Like Sometimes I make a record, and I'm like, I think I want to make another record. I don't think I want to go do this one. And this one, I'm sort of ready to go. Well, I'm very
0: excited about seeing you. I think you're doing the Royal Albert Hall as well, which is absolutely incredible
1: the last time we played there we played basically reinhold messner we were pushing that album and we played the entire album on that tour and i I remember every moment of that one yeah
0: all right ben just in terms of like longevity any tips advice for creators and musicians who are kind of starting out in the world now or trying to make their way in the world what do you say to them
1: Well, I've gotten a lot out of listening to a variety when I would listen to a variety of people who had done it before. In pop music, quite often, because the people right before you are the ones that are now failing, you don't really want to take advice from someone who you think is washed up. But I learned from William Shatner, who was you know 75 at the time we made his record, and he's now 92, and I've worked with him again recently, is that people that are older than you can all have little nuggets of something to learn from. And every other profession we're allowed to learn from our elders. So my advice would just be, let yourself take some advice. It's okay. They're not cool. They can't get a hit record now. You have access. They don't. But they can teach you something. I don't have anything specific. I'll just throw that to them. Keep an ear out. You might learn something. That's what I would say. Also, get enough sleep and drink plenty of water.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Ben. Good luck with everything. Thanks for joining me and uh I'll see you soon.
1: Right on. Very good. To talk
0: to you, man. Cheers, man. Bye-bye.